Well, hello and welcome to Insight with Political Tours and Beyond the Headlines. Peace and justice are often at odds when it comes to ending long-running conflicts. Vladimir Putin is unlikely to sign a peace deal if he knows he's going to end up before a war crimes tribunal. It's a fact both he and the powers backing Ukraine know well. So how do you put Russia and Putin himself in the dock? That's a question our next guest, Dahlia Scheinen, has been looking at. Hello and welcome, Dahlia. Hello, and thank you for having me. Good, good to have you here. You've written a, a very interesting article in the New Republic that looks at this question. And the start of that, you, you actually start in a very sensitive place, and that's um, Bucha, uh, just north of Kiev, where I think, as we all know now, um, thousands of atrocities were taken, take, uh, taken place. Um, and there's that, that very real balance, that question of how do you hold somebody for a, to account and at the same time, how do you have a negotiated settlement that, that, that uh, doesn't let them get away with it? And you you were there on, I mean, you've spoken to quite a few lawyers in Ukraine looking at this question. Just run us through that. Yeah, I've spoken to lawyers, I've spoken to parliamentarians, I've spoken to regular people there all remotely. Uh, I was not there on the ground. Let me also point out that when I started working on this article about the possibility of how to hold Russians and particularly Putin accountable, Bucha hadn't been... Uh, discovered yet. In other words, the Russian forces were still there. Um, and I had started this article <clears throat> knowing of, you know, the, what I consider to be a very urgent need for international, you know, some sort of process of justice for Putin based on what had already happened uh, up until then. I think I started working on this in early April. And uh, I was already basically through most of my research when the Russian forces we were withdrawing from Bucha and then we saw even further atrocities that were happening. But let me just give you a bit of a catalog from the beginning. I mean, by late March already, uh, many of the kinds of violations that would warrant you know, some sort of international prosecution were already well underway. I mean, when we're talking about violations, I mean, war crimes, violations of the laws of war, according to conventions and treaties that have been in place pretty much since the Second World War, but even earlier, uh, extensive use of cluster bombs, um, extensive attacks on and killing of civilians, torture, rape, of course, which became even more widespread, um, attacks, um, dozens, even hundreds of attacks on hospitals and health facilities. These are the kinds of things that the world has been trying to put constraints on for all these years. And that was quite obvious uh, that those were happening. Never mind the bigger questions of other kinds of war crimes, what we call crimes against humanity. So beyond war crimes, crimes against humanity. Uh, later, again, towards the end of my working on the, my work on this piece, uh, you know, people have been talking about the possibility of accusing Russia of genocide, and of course, the biggest crime of all, which was starting the war. There mm. is now an international statute against the crime of aggression, unjustified mm. war. So all of those things were the background, and you know, to get to your question of how do we balance these things, just to clarify maybe for the audiences what you mean, you're saying that if Russia is to have any incentive to sign a peace agreement, it will want something in return, presumably some sort of immunity for either, you know, uh, more people throughout the chain of command, but also for Putin himself. And that's a very good question. Shouldn't mm. we all be prioritizing ending the killing? Um, mm. And I don't have a good answer for it, but I will say that when I was speaking to you know, Ukrainians, one of the most striking answers that I got from a parliamentarian, uh, a, par a youngish, I would say in her 30s, a parliamentarian from Kiev, she said, you know, I, I, I she said, I, I think this is even justice is even more important than negotiations right now, mm. because she said, if we have negotiations, as I understand it, this is me speaking in her voice, yeah. then we won't be able to, then we will have to give up on the possibility of prosecution. But I want to see justice for the people who committed these atrocities on the ground. Our people need to see it. She said, think about mm. the son whose mother was captured by Russian soldiers, raped for two days, and then died of her wounds with the son present. Uh, you know, that son needs to see justice. And I thought that was an incredibly powerful statement. Yeah. Let me also clarify that as far as I can gather from, you know, every Ukrainian who speaks to the press or speaks to me or anyone, they do not trust negotiations. They don't believe in negotiate process with Putin. They don't believe Putin would negotiate in good faith or that he would stick to an agreement if he had it. Mm. And uh, overwhelmingly, they want to win this war and they expect to win this war by a combination of force and uh, you know Western economic pressure. Yeah. And so that is where 
your question is absolutely the most important question in a way. How does this end? But Russia, but Ukrainians don't want to give up on justice, and they do think there's another way to end this war. Okay, by way of explanation, your background is really in providing policy analysis uh, and also advice to politicians. You've done that. We know that, obviously, from a lot of your work within Israel, but you spent in the Middle East more broadly, but also you spend a lot of time in Eastern and in Southeastern Europe, so it's an area you're familiar with. And our focus here is to look at what the options are that are available rather than look at the more dense legal questions. I mean, I think we will touch on them and what each of those um, courts do and what aspects of the law can do what. But the main, the broader question we're asking here is what, what can be done and what are the disadvantages? And we know that there are precedents going back to the Second World War and more recently to the 1990s. And there are good things and bad things that have, have happened during, during that time. But just to, just to start with, um, just give us some of the, the legal framework that is a, um, available. I think we're all, we all know about Nuremberg, but in the 1990s, um, with the wars in Yugoslavia and also the genocide in Rwanda, that whole sort of area of international law was brought forward quite considerably. Can you tell yeah. us a bit about that? Yeah, let me also say in between. Okay, so first of all, you're you're right, and it's striking that from the Nuremberg military tribunals that you know tried the Nazi regime for their crimes, there was no other tribunal for trying war crimes until the 1990s, as you point out. But there were some very important landmarks in establishing other institutions intended to promote international justice and contain conflicts through legal proceedings. So first of all, the International Court of Justice was established uh, shortly after the UN in 1945 in order to resolve disputes between states through a legal framework. So that is an important innovation as well. And, and that now, was, as you know, that, that's, that was used by Ukraine very early on. Just Very just, early just on. About that. What was yes, that? Yes, very early on because... Uh, as you, as people may recall, uh, Putin gave uh, a long rambling speech two days before the invasion in which he accused Ukraine of committing genocide against Russians in, or Russian speakers, uh, Russian supporters in the Donbass region over the last, you know, uh, eight years, so I guess it's seven years. Hmm. No, what is it? 2014 through 2022. So eight yeah. years since Russia has been there. And Ukraine you know, went to the International Court of Justice and said, you need to rule against this because it's a violation Uh, of the Convention of Genocide to misuse the concept of genocide in order to start a war. And, you know, of course, the decisions were in their favor, but the International Court of Justice, you know, makes makes the ruling. And then what happens? So it didn't stop the war. Um, There are other mechanisms. The international. So that was established in the 1940s. And let me skip ahead. That's an important that's an important point, because Ukraine has actually the case has been won. And still, although the court has ruled against Russia and said you've got no justification for this war, the claim that you make that there's genocide against the Russian speaking population is clearly untrue. Yet Russia is still um, sustaining and and pushing forward with this war after that decision. So that's a clear that's a marker that's been put down. It's a marker and it's a very it's a theme that will come up throughout the course of this discussion, I think, that uh, as, as much as international justice is really a stunning, I think, uh, a stunningly optimistic and even audacious project for the global, you know, for the international community, there are limits on what it can do. And it generally doesn't stop war. And that's a good example, even though I'm not saying it's ineffective. I want to put out there that there are two very important parts pieces, which is that it's very important, very you know, optimistic, and, and really, you know, I think does provide a major contribution to human society, but it often doesn't stop war. So that's we have to keep that in mind as part of the background. Yeah. So that now, was the that was the ICJ. And that was the ICJ. ICJ. Now these are a little confusing. Justice. The ICJ is for states to take their claims uh, against other states and have them resolved. Yeah. Now, that was the situation straight through to 1998. In 1998, uh, uh, the the Rome Statute was negotiated and then signed, and the Rome Statute was a definition of a new kind of court that was formed in order to hold individuals responsible. So not just looking at the collective responsibility of a state at the political and diplomatic level, but saying individual people give these orders and have responsibility for these crimes and need to be held accountable. Uh, And that was also, I think, really one of the most important innovations and the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has you know the, the responsibility or the jurisdiction for to char- to to uh, prosecute four major crimes. Those are war crimes, the ones we talked about in the beginning, crimes against humanity, which are uh, you know crimes on a mass scale, targeting civilians on a mass scale uh, in a systematic way, 
uh, the crime of genocide, which tar which we need to be clear on what genocide is. It's not just the really big bad thing we saw in World War II, uh, but it has a definition. And the, the distinction is that it focuses on a group for their identity. So not just big, you know, broad scale killing, but specifically targeting members of a group for the their membership in that group uh, on a mass scale, of course. And the crime of aggression, the fact of having gone to war in an unjustified way. So those are all mechanisms that exist. By the way, the crime of aggression took a much longer time to be formally defined Let, and let's, activated. Let's come on to that one later. Okay, that's so we'll go on to that later. Most, one of the most interesting now, things here in terms of holding definitely. But I just but, I just, but I do want to make the point. Let me just make the point okay. about what when you say what are the possibilities? Why okay. is the ICC not enough? to charge Putin. Okay, this is, I think, the crux of the article. This is why there's been a lot of, uh, you know, uh, pessimism, I think, in the international system. Because Russia is not a member of the ICC. Russia did not uh, ratify the Rome Statute and jo or join the court. It's not the only country. Ukraine didn't uh, join it either, and neither did the US, by the way, mm. nor Israel, where I normally live. Uh, but as a result, if you want to charge Russia with actually that crime of aggression, now there are ways to charge people even if they're not part of the court, but specifically for the crime of aggression, of having started the war, there's a much higher bar. And if the country is not a member, mm. then the issue has to be referred to the court by the UN Security Council. Okay. And Russia sits on the UN Security Council. So there's gonna, no gonna way be... Russia would let yeah. that happen. Let's, let's just, because this is that's the really big, important question. And I, I want to come back to it. I'm not dismissing it. I just want to come back to it in, in a second. But I do want to highlight a couple of tensions you referred to. So for the, the, the point about the ICE, the International Criminal Court, is it deals with cases that we're talking about crimes that are so serious they're seen that, that they should be dealt with within an international realm, or they should have its international jurisprudence can deal with it. And also it's often the case that the states where the crimes have taken place either don't prosecute the crimes or are not capable of prosecuting the crimes. Well, that is actually the, that is actually the basis for the court's jurisdiction. It's yeah. based on the principle of what they call reciprocity, which is that if the country uh, at the, if the country that's party to the conflict yeah. will prosecute its own crimes legitimately, then the court doesn't have jurisdiction. Um, but Russia won't be expected to prosecute its own crimes. And Ukraine is moving ahead to prosecute yeah. Russians to the extent they can. We even saw earlier this, this week, I guess, uh, just a few days ago, that the first Russian soldier was put on trial and convicted in Ukrainian courts. So that's another mechanism. But if Ukraine can't uh, you know, have jurisdiction over, for example, the crime of aggression, because that would mean each country adopting these yeah. international laws into their own legal systems, which not all of them have done, so that's where the the, the, the um, dividing line between jurisdiction for local courts versus international yeah. courts takes place. Either the local yeah. court can't or won't prosecute, or doesn't have those crimes in their in their statutes. Okay, okay. So I mean, there's there's, there's so much to unpick here. I mean, I think the other thing yeah. I was going to um, pick up first of all, there's this tension um, between uh, these concepts, which are universal. They're seen as being so important. They're universal, and sovereignty. So if you're, you know, if you think of Britain and Brexit or sort of Trump's America, um, but even an America without Trump are very reluctant to, to uh, yield to the power of these courts because they're worried of being putting up, being, being put up uh, in front of the docks and the, the, putting the dock themselves. So, for example, with Iraq or in Afghanistan, for example. Very much so. I mean, there's a philosophical tension, as you point out, because countries have to agree that they're going to subject themselves to laws that their own people did not adopt. Right. So a democratic country says our laws should reflect our uh, popularly elected you know, lawmakers and government. And that's not the case. You're saying there's a, some sort of a universal international concept of law that is somewhere else geographically that has been yeah. uh, these laws that have been forged decades ago by people who do not represent our country, yet we're going to subject ourselves to them. And that is something that is an, an inherently full of tension, but also uh, many would say hypocritical because as you point out the US, and it's interesting, um, I only really was app appreciated this process while I was working on this article. The US you know, was very much for the development of the Rome Statute. The US sent negotiators under the Clinton administration to work and really push for this. Mm. And those negotiators, uh, some of them really expressed a tragic sense of failure when the US ultimately you know, signed the treaty, but then didn't ratify it. And there is yeah. a distinction. Russia also signed the treaty, by the way, but never ratified it. So there's yeah. a distinction between the theoretical and conceptual support for this and actually, you know, uh, going through the process 
through your own domestic legislature or government or whoever has to make that decision about ratifying and exceeding. And th that whole process was happening literally in the year before America went to war in Iraq. Um, and, you know, a lot of those negotiations were happening after 1998 when the Rome Statute was signed through the early 2000s after September 11th. Now, I don't want to you know, get too conspiratorial about this, but I think it's not entirely coincidence that the UN, the U.S. didn't want to be held back or didn't yeah. want to you know, even see itself as potentially held back and then embarked on a war that in the words of one of the most you know, important global experts on this, Philip Sands, who I quote in the article, uh, and you kindly also recommended that I speak to. Um, yeah. He said that was a manifestly illegal war as well. But the U.S. has never been held accountable for that. Um, and there are very, this this touches on one of really one of the even bigger towering issues that is both philosophical but has immediate ramifications, which is how can any country or or international community claim to hold Russia accountable for justice when there has been so much you know, frankly, inconsistent application of these same legal, moral, and political principles when it comes to other countries, yeah. you know, people we consider to be the good guys, like the U.S. Um, and even, you know, that's certainly one of the things that Putin has been looking at when it comes to NATO's behavior. NATO embarked on a war in Kosovo, you know, basically they consider it a war against Serbia, and they see that as an imperial war for control of a geopolitical region. And yet the entire world basically said, well, that's fine, even though it didn't have approval from the UN Security Council or anything. Uh, so there has been a lot of inconsistency in the international system, which is why I think, you know, as one of the other legal scholars that I spoke to said a very good point, you know, should we not go forward with trying to prosecute Russia for this because what a shame we've been inconsistent until now? Mm. Or should we say, well, the, uh, the, the aim is to become more consistent and strengthen you know, the demonstration of international justice and show that it can work and strive to be more okay. consistent in the application of those principles. Okay. I, of course, opt for the second. Okay, let, let's 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 just recap. So um, we've talked about the ICC. We talked about the International Court of Justice, which is about for the nations. We talked about the the 1990s. That it was there was the ICTY, which is the International Criminal Court for former Yugoslavia, and out of that, and also the conflict in Rwanda, you get the ICC. And we ind indicated this tension between um, national sovereign nations, particularly powers powerful nations like Israel, Russia, United States, um, that have held back from, from, from joining the ICC. Um, but let, let's just, let's talk about some other issues. Um, I mean, it's former Yugoslavia is an area I know well. Um, and if you look at justice that took place there, let's take Srebrenica. The mothers uh, who lost their sons and husbands at Srebrenica didn't see justice for 30 years. Um, and that that clearly is a, a considerable problem. So what I want to do now is just go through some of the problems that yeah. have been faced with previous conflicts. And there are there are numerous ones. And that first of all, time is one of them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Let me also point out that the reason why those uh, tribunals were established in the 1990s, uh, the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, was established in 1993 before Srebrenica. Um, and the ICTR, the Tri Tribunal for Rwanda, was established only after the genocide took place. But the reason they were established is because there was no international court yet. Mm -hmm. The International Criminal Court for holding individuals responsible. So there are other reasons why we think about it now. But let's talk about your question. I mean, interestingly, we sort of talked on, touched upon the bigger, like theoretical and philosophical challenges of international justice, uh, such as you know the concept of uh, hypocrisy or victor's justice or, or the inability of justice to stop wars in the meantime. But what you're pointing out is what I consider, what I have come to think of as technical problems that lead to real you know, lack of credibility for the entire process. So time is one of the biggest ones. I mean, collecting evidence of war crimes and proving each one can be an, you know, a colossal project. Of course, if you wanna have a trial that's a real trial, not a show trial, you need to really gather the evidence and prove it and catalog it and make the case and interview witnesses and cross-examine witnesses and do everything and, that and a And why does. did you think, what was your conclusion looking at why it took so long in just, for example, that case. What was the inclusion? I know you spoke to Jeffrey Nice, um, yes. who was involved in, in heavily in with the ICTY. And what was his conclusion? Yeah. Why did it take so long? Well, for a yeah, number yeah. of reasons. First of all, you know, during wartime, it 
fit simply physically, it can be very hard to gather evidence because it's dangerous and there are battles raging and people yeah. don't always have access to places. Places can but be we closed think that's up. probably come a lot easier with digital with in a digital world and to um, some extent, yeah. but you still need to gather the evidence. And in the in mid-1990s, it wasn't so easy. And you know, now I would say in Ukraine, uh, the Ukrainian prosecutor's office has been working extensively on the ground in real time to collect evidence immediately. And you know the other problem is that this snowballs because if you can't collect physical evidence at the time of the crimes, evidence degrades over time. People's yeah. bodies decompose to be, get very graphic. So that's part of it. The other part of it um, is that in former Yugoslavia, you know, many parties were held responsible. Serbians were on trial. Uh, Croatians were on trial. Albanian Kosovar Albanians were on trial. Those were the biggest groups. After that, even a few Bosniaks were on trial. So you know, identifying all these different chains of command through various armies and militias and you know devolved groups was very complicated yeah. then of course there's the biggest problem which will also really we have to come back to with relation to russia and that's that the icc has no physical way to nab sub, uh, uh, um, suspects they can't there is no police force that the icc has that can enter some sovereign country apropos the tension between international court and, and sovereignty. Nobody can enter a sovereign country and kidnap a suspect and take them to The Hague. Mm. So this depends to some extent on the countries being willing to participate and simply locating, especially some of the top, top perpetrators, or at that time they were still suspects. Now they, they've since been convicted, some of the top generals, or you know, as you know, Radko Mladic and, mm. uh, and, and uh, Karadzic, you know, these people were hiding, I consider it pretty much hiding in plain sight within Serbia for years until Basically, through political pressure and incentives, the Serbian government found them and handed them over. And that was the case for many others. Now, I think that so the time factor really is problematic. We all know the, you know, the aphorism justice delayed is justice denied. But the people of Srebrenica and many other crimes, it's not just Srebrenica, had to live for years knowing that these perpetrators were, were living among them freely, yeah. just may, sometimes even right next to them. And I think that was an extraordinarily painful, uh, you know, I mean, painful. It's not one moment of pain. It's 30 years of pain or almost 30 years. So and the other there are other explanations that I got from some of the people I spoke with, especially people like Jeffrey Nice, who hmm. we should say he he was a prosecutor in the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia. He prosecuted Milosevic, uh, Slobodan Milosevic, who was you know the, the leader of Serbia at the time. And he was uh, really the top figure responsible for you know the worst of the aggression uh he was put on trial he was only uh he was only indicted in 1999 after during the kosovo war mm. but he died while he was waiting awaiting awaiting justice basically he was yeah. on trial and died of a heart attack before any conviction could ever be handed down so that's a part of the problem that's a very material uh example of how justice delayed can be justice denied his victims never saw the top figure actually convicted. And, you know, Jeffrey Nice and some of the other lawyers I spoke to uh, made the point that there are legal um, sort of techniques that are legal traditions, like the British, you know, the Anglo-American system of conducting trials re relative to the French um, system of, you know, how you actually interrogate a claim. Adversarial that versus. Order or longer, yeah, exactly. Adversarial yeah, versus yeah. testimonial and, you know, compiling evidence in written form versus, you know, many, many witness, uh, you know, um, putting many, many witnesses on the stand, which can, the witnesses can take a very long time to tell their stories, whereas, you know, some of that can be condensed into documents that judges can read. And so there are a lot of interesting ways to think about Technically, why these trials yeah. take too long and how they can be shortened. So this um, is this this is this is the something. This is what I got from what you were, you've written about is that, um, and it's certainly you see it in, in the media is that that there's a legal framework there which has been built up over time. There is an sense people the world is appalled by what has happened, and that there there's a sense of urgency therefore to learn from the mistakes that have been committed previously, and. Although we've talked about the reluctance of big states to support these concepts beforehand, you're seeing a tremendous amount of support within the United States to do that. So the Senate passing motions in favor of basically accusing Russia of war crimes. So do you, I presume, and there are significant things happening now, not beyond the evidence gathering in Ukraine that actually show, well, there may be momentum, we could start to see things. So what, what's happening now? What kind of a momentum are you seeing? What, has, what is being done? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the most interesting uh, efforts has been, you know, this idea to try to get around the problem of the inability to hold Putin personally responsible in the International Criminal Court for yeah. the crime the, the, of aggression. Yeah, the fact that he's not there shouldn't matter, you crack on. Yeah. No, no, but I mean, the fact that he probably can't uh, be indicted in the International Criminal Court because of the Security Council problem. So one of the most interesting initiatives has come from, you know, international legal figures led by, well, pretty much following a call uh, that Philip Sands wrote when he wrote an article in the Financial Times about this, saying we yes, need to establish a special tribunal. So we've had Philip Sands on our program, but for Great. those who don't know who he is, he's um, a professor of law um, in, in London. He is one of the leading international jurist experts on um, international law crimes of genocide. Uh, and uh, crimes against humanity. And he wrote an article in the FT that garnered a huge amount of support and has got support from U former UK prime ministers behind this, this move. Right, by basically saying we need to establish a special tribunal to get around those issues. And they're trying to gather momentum about it. I think after, the, after you know, so many people signed on to that idea of establishing a special tribunal to prosecute the crime of aggression, uh, to prosecute Putin for the crime of aggression. So there has been, you know, a sort of working group that is trying to hammer out the details, because if they are to establish something like this, essentially countries would have to ratify it. It would have to be ratified like any other, uh, you know, court, even though it's not a permanent court. So that's one of the most interesting things going on. I think the other thing I would say is important is statements from the highest level of global leadership. I mean, the fact that President Biden has used the term genocide, you know, set off a great deal of controversy, but I think it does show that the you know that the top figures in the world are oriented towards defining these crimes and hopefully, eventually prosecuting them. And as I pointed out, the Ukrainian courts have already uh, begun both collecting evidence and trying individual uh, Russian soldiers to the extent that they can. Although I think already there's criticism of like, okay, there's you know a baby face looking Russian soldier who was sent there by Putin who now is facing life in jail. What about the top figures? All of that, I think, will have to gather momentum. I know that also the Ukrainian um, prosecutor's office is working very closely with international, with the international bodies, uh, the international courts, and uh, international civil society groups, including um, some groups in the former Yugoslavia who are, you know, helping them think about how to gather evidence and be prepared mm -hmm. for these kinds of cases. You know, Nick, I want to talk about one more problem that we we didn't have time to get into because I think it is really critical in understanding this whole thing, and especially because it touches on the former Yugoslavia. One of the, you know, we talked about the time and the technical problem, but the other really difficult problem with international justice, and you know, in former Yugoslavia, this is a great example of it, is that on the ground, each side that receives a conviction of their people who fought in the war, you know, here you get into a battle of perceptions. And so, for example, the Serbian side was generally seen as the aggressor by the world, but they considered themselves, well, having been drawn into the war, and it was, you know, in some ways we were about to be victimized, just kind of the way Putin's saying, and our people, they think that their people are war heroes. Okay, none of us have to agree with that. But the fact is that they saw the international criminal tribu the, the, the tribunal as biased against them, but they weren't the only ones. In other words, the Serbs, the Croats, the Kosovo Albanians, every time, you know, the court made a huge effort to show that it was not about victor's justice and that it was being balanced. And that even though, you know, for example, the Kosovo Albanians really were seen as this tiny little defense, you know, people defending themselves against this massive aggression mm -hmm. of the Serbian forces, they also were on the dock when there were evidence, when there was evidence of war crimes. But even they managed to think, well, every time they got a conviction, they said, well, it's politically biased against us. Even I, I internally. Mean, I'm going to take the Kosovars. Um, they've got more political leaders in jail in, um, right. <laughs> in, in The Hague than the right. Serbs have. So it is quite remarkable. But it's more than, even worse, even more than that, these processes become part of domestic internal political competition. So parties will try to, you know, um, put pressure on suspects, you know, suspected war criminals from the other parties, they'll try to raise campaigns in society to have those people sent to the Hague because it looks better for their party if the other party has war criminals. So these things can really become a political football, even in terms of domestic politics, but also specifically in terms of the ongoing attempt to reconcile uh, between the parties to the conflict at, in, in general. And of course, nobody knows this better than Israel, which is where I'm from. And I've been following very closely attempts to open investigations into Israeli conduct in the International Criminal Court by Palestinians. And the Israelis have a very simple way of dealing with that. They say this is a matter of global anti-Israel and probably anti-Semitic sentiment. 
And so, of course, we don't think these courts have any legitimacy. It has nothing to do with our policy. And, you know, all of those processes are really significant. They do um, lower the credibility of the court. We haven't even mentioned African mm. countries who say, wait a second, we have had more people convicted than any of the world's biggest aggressors like the U.S., or Russia, uh, maybe these courts are established just to hold, you know, powerless, small, poor African countries to just and hold us to a standard of justice that the most powerful countries in the world never have to face. Mm. And, so there's and in a way, counter arguments there too, but these are yeah, a really special tribunal is a get around, isn't it? As you've mentioned it before, it's a get around that avoids those questions. It's it's neater for those countries that fear that they could be put in the dock um, because it, it basically focuses on one area and says, well, it doesn't have to include Israel. It doesn't have to include. It may be a get around, but I think the impact, uh, you know, the law is a symbol, right? In addition to actually being a, a form of, you know, social control and social protection, law is also a symbol. The appearance of what happens in legal proceedings is no less important than the actual crimes and convictions. In my reading as a political scientist, it's one of the major things that I focus on is the symbolism of politics, what this means to the people watching. And so I think that you're right on a technical level. Yes, a tribunal can be a workaround for the US because nobody, you know, it's specifically focused on one country. But overall, the average citizen doesn't under, doesn't follow all those ins and outs. What they see is we're on the dock somewhere. And and you guys aren't. And that's, you know, a legitimate understanding of the big picture in a way. Sometimes, you know, regular citizens, because they're not following all these legal technicalities and justifications, in some ways they see the big picture better. And so if the big picture doesn't look fair, that's a problem for establishing yeah. the legitimacy of these international processes. Okay, Let, let's take some questions. We've got Simon Jackson there. We met, we've got lots of other things we could be talking about. Genocide is one of them. That's a, a question that's been raised about Ukraine, but something we can look at briefly. Um, there's also, we haven't looked, we haven't talked in detail yet about the crime of aggression. What does it actually mean? So we can come onto those issues. So anyone, if you've got any questions about any of those issues or others, please do put them in the Q&A box below or wherever it is on your screen. Go ahead, Simon Jackson. If it's Simon or Annie, go ahead, Simon. Simon today. Um, were the Ukrainians, to, uh, two questions, by the way, were the Ukrainians to agree as part of any ceasefire agreement not to support any pursuit of Russia for war crimes, would anyone have any right to criticize them? Criticize them? And secondly, um, it's something you've addressed briefly, but I wasn't still qu not quite clear where you stand. Where does your assertion that justice delayed is justice denied leave resolution 242 on the West Bank? <laughs> okay. So in terms of, uh, look, anybody, when you say, does anybody have the right to criticize them? Of course, anybody can criticize uh, such a decision. But I think what we'll really see is a great outcry from the Ukrainian people. I mean, unless something, you know, and I'm, I'm saying this, let me be a little cautious. I am a public opinion researcher in my original professional direction. So when I say people feel, usually I have survey research. I do not have survey research on this, but from everything I can hear from Ukrainians, they want justice you know, desperately. So I think that, you know, one of the reasons why I think, you know, President Zelensky has been very skeptical of the negotiating processes. He's letting them play out, but he has been very skeptical about them. And I have not heard of any Ukrainian who believes in them, you know, that, that they will lead to a negotiated solution. Um, so I think that one of the reasons he's been very strong and very clear that the only way forward is to get more weapons from the West and more economic, you know, sanctions is because he does not believe in a negotiated resolution. I think if he were to sign a negotiated agreement right now with Putin that foregoes uh, international justice, I think he would face an enormous level of anger from the population, despite the losses, you know, despite the crimes against, I mean, you know, the devastation of Ukrainian society. At least that's my reading on an anecdotal level right now. So I'm just going to put that in brackets that I don't have empirical research on it. So I think, first of all, the outcry would come from the Ukrainian people. But, you know, I also think that in terms of crit criticizing, I mean, I would be very careful. I personally think that it is essential for the world to see that someone like Putin, or at least, you know, the chain of, you know, high up people in the chain of command will go on trial, you know, as a matter of, of demonstrating that there is such a thing as equality before the law at a global level. Um, that is a principle that I wish we would, you know, strive constantly to, um, you know, integrate into our human society. And that no matter how powerful you are, you too can be subject to the judgment of the law. I think that's essential, but I personally would never judge 
a decision of the leader of Ukraine to stop the war because people are dying. And I yeah. think, you know, I guess I have to okay. say that's the first priority. And, and so the second part of Simon's question second is part. the obvious one. I mean, uh, uh, the resolution that Simon's referring to is Israel's occupation of the West Bank, right. um, which is um, another, belongs to another country and it still continues to occupy in natural fact annex part of that land. So from you'll see reactions across the Middle East when the, the, the accusations of war crimes, the accusation, the main thing that you saw in the Arab press was this is hypocrisy. What about when you're shooting Palestinians and you're doing X, Y and Z in our lands, nobody does a thing about it. Oh, and I, even more than that, I mean, many, you know, many Palestinians feel like, well, when we, you know, try to fight back just the way the Ukrainians are fighting back, we're called terrorists where, you know, Ukrainians are heroes to the rest of the world. Listen, justice delayed, justice denied is, is I almost think that it's so far beyond that in the case of, you know, Israel and the Palestinians, because it's been going on for so many years. I mean, you know, there are the, Israel has violated international law in many ways, right? you know, from settlements to, well, the question of refugee return is a little more complicated in international law, but as as the decades go by, Israel is more in violation of international law, but they're, you know, because they're not retroactively applied, I wouldn't say the law was so clear at the time, but in so many ways, Israel violates international law. And then there's the accusations of war crimes for every specific war, which have to be investigated. And, you know, there is an attempt to open up such investigations at the ICC, but they haven't really moved forward yet. So I think the problem, you know, let me let me just try to characterize what I see as the outcome of that problem in the case of the Palestinians. There is such a lack of trust among, you know, among Palestinians that Israel will ever be held accountable because of the evidence, right? Because of the decades that have gone by uh, since Israel has been violating international law and the years that have gone by since there have been credible accusations of violating laws of war or committing war crimes. And they know that, or they, they have not seen Israel ever be actually held accountable for those. And so I think the result is a deep, deep distrust um, and lack of legitimacy that either international institutions will help them or individual other countries and lack of buy-in to the kind of international order that the world has been trying to develop in the post-war era. So I think that, you know, if you're if you're trying to develop something like a rules-based order, something like a human rights-based order, which is what, you know, the liberal world order that has been, you know, under construction with many setbacks and many flaws, as we're talking about, but I still think is a better order in the post-World War era, the fewer parties who buy into that, the weaker it's going to be. And the Palestinians are. I mean, nobody really cares because they're just, I'm sorry to say, because they're, you know, 5 million people in the region, maybe another six or 7 million abroad. They don't have any political power. So who's paying attention, but they have no buy-in. And I think the problem is that they also stand for a large part of the Arab world that has, you know, that sees places very little legitimacy in these institutions. And that is a consequence, Okay. you know. Let, let's um, let, let's come bring it back to Ukraine. It's a, an important point, and I think one that uh, many people listening might will have sympathy with. You you wrote um, in order for this for justice in Ukraine to work, there have to be more limited expectations. So um, can we can we talk about? I mean, you talked about the war of aggression, and that seems to me to be the 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 key thing. Russia as a whole, Putin as a whole, needs to be held accountable. For the whole war, I mean, and, and and smaller cases when it comes to crimes against, um, you know, uh, war crimes, specific war crimes, even at a commander level, can be dealt with by the ICC. Let's talk about what that special tribunal should focus on. Yeah. Um, okay. I, well, the special tribunal should focus on the crime of aggression pr primarily because that's the one where the ICC will not be able to prosecute Putin for the reasons that we said. Um, the crime of regression was, you know, it's not exactly a new concept. It was developed already. It was on the, uh, you know, the, the statute that established the Nuremberg Tribunal. It was called uh, a crime of a crimes against peace. But what it really means is that, you know, when a country is in violation of the United Nations Charter, Article 4, which says that you can't invade, you, you know, that, that no nation shall use force against another nation, uh, violating their sovereignty and conquering their land and whatever else. I mean, the idea, the entire order of the world is that sovereign states cannot be violated and that states cannot conquer territory by force. This is critical because, you know, for anybody who's kind of tracking war trends, we have a world that's rife with conflict and misery and ethnic wars and internal wars and civil wars and school shootings. I hope I don't need to tell anybody about that. But 
We have seen a decline in the number of conventional state-to-state -state wars since the Second World War. And there are many reasons for it. We can look, you know, I would not reduce this to one item. Some people would argue that nuclear weapons have kept countries from going to war to one, one another, or we could say NATO, you know. But certainly one of the big reasons is that countries know that they are no longer allowed to simply invade another country militarily and take their land by force. And that reduces the incentive for going to war in the first place, because most of those pre-World War II and certainly 19th century imperial wars are about territorial expansion. So this system is not just a theoretical concept. Mm -hmm. It has actually helped to reduce the number of conventional wars. And if we don't you know, put teeth behind the concept that it is illegal to go to war, then you know, the whole thing could fall apart, which yeah. is why well, I think you, this is so critical. About, do you know about the mechanisms of the special tribunal at all? I mean, I'm, in, in Nuremberg, um, you had, uh, you know, the, the the former Nazi regime were in the dock, but they were yes. given defence lawyers. Mm -hmm. um, I can't imagine that you're going to see any members of the Russian government appearing, turning up at a um, special tribunal. And so there you've got the problem of being tried in absentia. I mean, how has how, how yeah. their defence managed those questions? So for one thing, yeah, the working group that's trying to hammer out these details is still working on this. I don't think we have, there's nothing that formal, right? These are a, a collection yeah. of individuals who are just, you know, using the best of their legal minds to try to figure it out. But the question of in absentia is important because in general, I think in legal terms, it's not considered a good thing to hold people trial, to hold people on trial, to put people on trial who can't be there or who don't or who won't be there. So it's it's a problem for the ICC. The ICC can't do it. But a special tribunal could decide that they will hold Putin or anybody else responsible in absentia. They will try them in absentia, and that can only ha happen if other countries ratify it. Now you could say that you know what could happen is that they could propose this. These are the these are the articles that we propose, or these are the definitions of the mechanism we want. They include you know uh, trying people who are not present and you know who would have to be tried in absentia. And other countries might say, well, no, we don't want that, so we're not going to ratify it. So that's a problem. They're going to have to do a lot of negotiating. Um, I think that they will certainly make every effort to try to show that you know to try to have it be a genuine trial with the principle of defense mechan you know defense uh, defense legal teams for the Russian side if there is such a thing, but it does get complicated and I think you know I I was I just somebody was telling me that they sent my article to a legal scholar uh, whom I don't know myself and the person responded. I'm pessimistic. So, you know, it, it's not it's not a surefire mechanism at all. I will say that, you know, in uh, in Nuremberg, there were judges, of course, from the allied powers, from all of the allied powers, and they themselves were worried. I mean, I think the, I, I think it was the British judge who said, you know, this is very worrying because if this looks like a case of victor's justice, if it looks like a show trial, because, you know, it's so clear that we won the war and the Germans are to blame and we're going through the motions, but we all know we're going to convict them. He said, it's just going to look like the kind of show trials the Soviet Union has been already doing, you know, for, for years before the World War. And we don't want to replicate that. So I think there's a real balance here. You know, so again, I can't really answer your question about the specific legal mechanisms that will be put into place because they're under construction and we don't know which ones will end up in a final yeah. you know, proposal. But I will say that... Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the most striking insights to me came from Jeffrey Nice, the barrister who was a prosecutor uh, against Milosevic in the uh, Tribunal for Yugoslavia. And he said, you know, it's very important to make that attempt to show that it's a real trial and to be even handed and, and show that it's not Victor's justice alone that carries, you know, the final judgment. However, he proposed and he wrote this article before the war in Ukraine that the very categorical and sweeping global convict, you know, un, uh, acceptance of the conviction um, and you know, the sentencing of the Nazi regime was actually a positive thing for helping the world and Germany to reconstitute their relations, to rebuild Germany, to build better relations between Germany and the US and, and, and Western powers after the war. And look what Germany is today one of the most important, if not the most important stalwart ally of your, you know, within Europe as a leader and in the Western world. By contrast, he pointed out that Yugoslavia is admired in this bickering over whether the courts are biased and who's really to blame. And look, we had your, your side was convicted, but isn't it terrible that your side was also exonerated? I mean, individual figures. And, you know, for many reasons, I mean, maybe this is a little bit too simplistic, but he was saying, you know, look at where the former Yugoslavian countries are now. They are in many ways, stuck in the past. They're still fighting these battles. 
the court in, you know, has been accused by some critics of keeping those issues alive because they're because of the time that's passed. There's still, you know, I mean, the court is closed now, but up until 2017, yeah. still wrangling through these battles. It, it's and, accused of both siderism as well. It's a, they right, to, to right. Keep the equal amount of charges, but I think that re also re reinforces the point that you know Germany was able to move on, and there was consensus about what it had done, and the trial, the, the you know Nuremberg trials brought it out there for everyone to see, but also because it had been defeated, uh, and and that possibly is part of the problem. You know how likely is Russia is Russia to be defeated? And, and yeah, and this is where we get into a military analysis. You know, can we expect a, a military slash economic yeah. you know uh, defeat for Russia versus some sort of a negotiated resolution. We started out with this question. I'm not a military analyst, but I... Um, and you, but you can see why that's a political imperative as well for Russia to be humiliated, to you to use those words. I want to, I want to um, move on to uh, another, another question, which is um, a word which is bandied around quite a bit. It is genocide. Um, you are not a legal expert, and nor am I, but this is something that I know that Philippe Sands has pull back again. If you read his book, East West Street, he actually values uh, two concepts here that compete with each other. That's crimes against humanity and genocide. The genocide being the idea really essentially trying to wipe, wipe out or target a whole people and uh, get rid of them, uh, um, in, in, to put it in uh, this, a simple way. But he doesn't like um, that. Uh, he doesn't think that that's a useful expression at this time. And he certainly doesn't like politicians using it. Right. And you can read about his opinion also that he wrote an article in The New York Times just a couple of weeks ago, um, a few weeks ago now about this, where he really analyzed the complications with using it. I mean, I think for every concept, for every word that we use, not to get into like, you know, a whole uh, lesson on semiotics, but we have to understand that there are legal definitions for these things. And, you know, the concept of genocide has been legally defined. It's, of course, very new. It was, and his book is really wonderful for exploring the great struggle that Raphael Lemkin, the Polish, you know, Polish uh, uh, legal scholar, had to go through in the U.S. and running around the U.K. You know, during the, in the halls of power throughout the establishment of the Nuremberg tribunals to get people to recognize the concept, which he basically invented. He just invented this word. I mean, Sands has a great, you know, uh, uh, chapter relating to how he found his papers. You know, he was scribbling these, this word by hand on a piece of paper to kind of try it out and see how it worked. And then trying to argue uh, for why it should be included in the Nuremberg set, in the Nuremberg accusations and the charges and how most of the prosecutors didn't use it, but one of them did, but they weren't convicted on those charges. So it's very, it's a very recent history. Um, but there is a legal definition. Then, of course, Every word in the English language or any other language has sort of the human connotations, the things that we think about when we hear that word or the things that we feel when we hear that word. And we're supposed to hear the word genocide and feel horror and outrage and scandal and, you know, depression and all these terrible things. Um, the problem is that when you overuse a word, it loses those connotations. It certainly loses the shock value, I think. Yeah. And so, so the basic, let me just go run through the basic premise is that um, there are historians and theorists who are close to Putin who have argued that Ukraine should not exist, that it's not really a nation and that it needs to be brought back within the Russian fold. And, and you can see there's an essay that Putin has written and there's an, uh, an essay that one of his political theorists have, have, have written. But I guess that the leap people are saying is, look, this war is part an attempt to wipe out the Ukrainian people. And yeah. that, if that was the case, that would amount to genocide. I think so, too. Again, like, the, you know, when you said, how do we look at the concept? Let's take the legal version. It's very hard to prove because you have to prove, according to the legal definition, that there has been intention to wipe out that people. But, you know, genocidaires, as they were called, you know, following the, the Rwanda genocide, don't often write down their plans to wipe out an entire nation. You have to know how to read what they're saying and what they mean and what they mean yeah. by the connotations when they say that. And one of the things that I've noticed, and many people have noticed, I think, but I have kind of heard it in a particular way, is that not only is Russia saying, the, you know, the, that Ukraine shouldn't exist as a nation, you can you can actually, I mean, they could defend themselves and say, well, we just don't think it should be a sovereign nation. We're not trying to kill all their people. We just don't think they should have political sovereignty, which is a different you know, argument altogether. And they can say, you know, that doesn't mean we want to kill them all. And it's not genocide. But when you when you read some of the top, you know, in most influential uh, writers in Russia who are aligned with Putin and the Kremlin and Putin himself and every everything in the Russian media 
What they'll say over and over again is that the Ukrainian people are Nazis, and this is a program of denazification. So what they mean is we have to get rid of the Nazis. We have to put them through filtration camps. And I have understood, if you think about the meaning of what of the words they're saying, okay, nobody likes Nazis. I don't like Nazis, mm. but I hear what he means. What he means is that they are um, expendable people. We have to get rid of them. They are people who need to be wiped out. He's using the word Nazi in the exact same way that Hutus in Rwanda in 1994 were using the term cockroach to talk about Tutsis before they slaughtered them. We have to get rid of the cockroaches. And of course, in World War II, the, you know, the, the, the mm. Nazi regime was talking about the Jews as vermin. So it, it doesn't really matter the word you use if you understand that the connotation and the meaning of the word is something entirely different. So Nazis bad, but using the term Nazi in order to justify killing people, not just taking away the sovereignty of the nation, political sovereignty, but killing the people, to my mind is an incredible statement of intent. And this was written out and explicated. You know, there's a very influential Russian intellectual, I can't remember his name offhand, but he gave an interview to one of the very, you know, state-oriented uh, media just a few weeks, maybe two months ago, it was translated into English, people translated online, where he basically, you know, laid this all out. And so I think there are clear statements of intention, at least within the general milieu, and mm. from what we are hearing from Russian soldiers, I mean, we've heard evidence, you know, we've heard reports of Ukrainians who've told Western media that in Bucha and in the villages, when the Russians came in, they said, you know, they like one person said, I stopped a soldier and I said, why are you doing this? Why are you killing? Why are you about to kill these people? And he said, they're Nazis. We have to kill them. So if you're using the word Nazi in that way, to my mind, it is a statement of intent that we view all Ukrainians as a, you, whatever word you mm -hmm. like, that means they have to be exterminated. Okay. Okay. Let, let, Jess, I, I want to. We're sort of getting up for the last um, sort of t uh, ten minutes here, and I just want to recap. So we've got um, the ICC pursuing cases. We've got Ukrainian prosecutors pursuing cases. Um, there's the a case has already been heard in the International Court of Justice. There is uh, an international tribunal being proposed and is, is garnering a lot of support. So there's a huge amount taking place there. Russia is also says that it's going to. Um, arrange its own tribunals. How much of a problem do you, is that, is that a, a likelihood? I mean, very briefly, what can you see Russia doing in response? I mean, I can see Russia trying to put some sort of tribunal together in Russia. I don't think any other country would be likely to help, you know, to support uh, that kind of effort. It's very hard for me to see how Russia would have any support from other countries, even the countries that are, you know, standing on the sidelines somewhat. Although I think there is no standing on the sidelines, you know, if you're yeah. not joining the sanctions or the. And or, I think there's every expectation that the people but, taken out of Astaval, the the um, Azov uh, brigades and others yeah. will be will be put on trial or worse. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I think that what it will really do is help reinforce what Russia, what Putin has been trying to do for the last 20 years, which is create an entirely hermetic and separate environment of consciousness. You know, what is actually happening in the world looks completely different inside Russia because there is such a stranglehold of the media on, uh, well, of, of the state on the media. And I think also a kind of invisible stranglehold on how people think and talk. This is what we hear not, from, I mean, I wouldn't venture to say this, but, you know, the people who are really Russia experts from Russia, the best, mm. you know, minds in the Western world talking about Russia because they are Russian and they can understand these things and they speak okay. the language. And they so go, in a way, we all know that. Like I think me. what I'm saying, let me just yeah. let me finish. But what I think is it will contribute to Russia's, to Putin's attempt to anchor in perpetuity a sense that Russia was the victim, Russia was forced into this position, Russia had all these terrible things happen to them, and that trial, if anything, will be a symbol ongoing for you know months and years or however long to. Um, you know, to drive that point home among the Russian population and keep up that consciousness. But what actual effect does it have on Russia ultimately? So, we, I mean, we, I think most people watching here, all of us support these concepts of, of um, international justice and think these trials should be taking place. But within Russia, life carries on pretty much as normal. Putin's not going to be in the yeah. dock. And it's highly unlikely that any of his commanders are going to be in the dock. So what, what benefit does it have? I mean, how does that help stop the, the conflict? And I'll yeah. come to Vaughan Grills in a second. So hang on for a second, Vaughan. Right. No, I mean, there is a very material aspect because other, other Russians can be held accountable, not for the crime of aggression, but for the other crimes that we talked about at the ICC. And if there are indictments out there, they can be arrested if they ever leave Russia. Now, a sitting head of state 
uh, based on mostly customary international law, generally won't be arrested in a third country, even though that's not foolproof either. But for the most part, there's a sense that Putin himself, if he travels to another country while he's still in office, probably won't be arrested. But other figures can. And that kind of pressure on people throughout the chain of command, knowing that they're essentially prisoners in their country, because they can't go anywhere without fear of being arrested. Even Israeli officers have faced you know, concerns about that kind of thing over time when there have been efforts to try to try them. Um, you know, there is some hope that that can act as a deterrent, that, they, that you know, no matter how hermetic they try to make the media environment in Russia, that there is an awareness that the entire world is basically out for them. And, you know, let's say so I've heard some of the legal experts hope that the top, you know, generals and again, the top layers of the chain of command will say we are most likely to be held responsible. We can be arrested if we ever go abroad. This is a deterrent. We don't really want to be part of this. Maybe we should, you know, defect, peel off. I mean, what we saw, for example, of the uh, the diplomat in the um, Russian UN mission who yeah. made a stunning statement of basically defecting from the Russian regime, even though he's still in Geneva, and condemning the regime and saying, "I'm ashamed." I mean, I think the hope is that there will be more people like that at higher levels, even within the military, maybe within the FSB and the intelligence units that will say, we don't want to be held responsible for this kind of thing. And we don't want to be a pariah state forever. And, you know, I mean, if, if they have any sense of history, yeah. they will look at the countries that were either, you know, either the Nazi regime or collaborators with the Nazi regime and realize how much they lived with the shame for years and trying mm. to distance themselves from it for years. I mean, you know, yeah. every French person was in the resistance, it turns out, because people, you know, over in the course of history don't want to be associated with these regimes. And I think that, you know, maybe they will look at it like that. Okay, we've got a curveball from Grills, which may be our last question. Vaughan Grills, go ahead. Oh, hello there, Dahlia. Hi. Nice to you. Nice to um, see you. Nice to see you again. Um, the, 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 I, I just wanted to ask very simply about Bennett and uh, Natalie Bennett going to uh, parleying with, uh, with Putin. It just seems extraordinary that the prime ministers of the Jewish nation um, should do this. I know they've got Syria on the doorstep and they want to sort of keep things sweet on that front because the Russians are in there. Um, but even so, I mean, if there's one nation that should stand up and say, and blow the whistle, say, wait, where are we going with this? To uh, Putin uh, calling uh, Ukrainians uh, or Nazis, uh, is, and with a Jewish prime minister there. Hmm. I mean, it's got to be Israel, hasn't it, to actually stand up and say, you know, blow the whistle on this, and say, this, this is unacceptable. Yeah, this is a sore point. It's a sore point because it's been one of the most frustrating and kind of devastating aspects of Israeli policy. And believe me, I'm devastated by many aspects of Israeli policy. But uh, I will do a little shameless self-promotion and say that, you know, your point about for anybody who doesn't really you know follow this, Syria invaded Ukraine. Uh, sorry, Russia invaded Syria in 2015, intervened militarily in the Syrian, what became a Syrian civil war. And Russia has been essentially controlling uh, the country ever since militarily. And Israel is worried about the presence of Hezbollah, the presence of Iranian-backed militias in Syria. And Israel conducts regular airstrikes and air sorties over Syria. To do that, they coordinate with Russia. So Israel has been very cautious, not wanting to upset Russia, and sort of trying to take something like a neutral line and not upset Putin because they say we need to defend uh, you know, the, the security of our region. This is directly on our border. Iran-backed, Iranian-backed militias and Hezbollah are the, is one of the biggest threats to Israel. We need that freedom of movement over Syrian airspace. And as a result, the prime minister has not only uh, refused to condemn Putin personally, but taken a very you know, m mild line in general saying, well, we support Ukraine, but, you know, uh, it's the war is terrible and peace is good. And even trying to help negotiate between the two sides. Um, there is a, a, a the level of political analysis. There has been a division of labor when the foreign minister, uh, Yair Lapid in Israel, has been much more outspoken, openly condemning Putin numerous times and, you know, taking a much more a position, much more aligned with the Western allies and calling the reality what it is. Uh, the negotiating uh, uh, the negotiating process when, in which Bennett was sort of a go-between, I would say in the first few weeks of the war, I was willing to wait and see, right? Anything that could stop the war would be a good thing. And if Bennett could pull that off, many of us thought, you know, that's it. He's just going to be a hero forever. But I think it took Bennett and the rest of the world a while to realize that there was no real negotiation. I think the Ukrainians knew this all along, that Putin only ever used negotiations to drag out you know, uh, just just to you know, make it seem like oh, there was hope. Yeah. 
and keep going. Mm. So that's it has been a very frustrating aspect of Israeli policy. The Israelis will say, well, we're sending humanitarian aid and we're mm. taking in some refugees. They haven't even been very I, good about I that. Do, yeah, there's one nation could, that could take out Russian air defenses over Syria. It's, it's Israel. Exactly. It could take on Russian air defenses over Syria. Yeah, but that would mean declaring war on Russia. I mean, Israel has no interest in actually being at war with Russia, right? Uh, I, you know, I, but on the other hand, I have to say, oh, the shameless self-promotion was that you should all read an article that I wrote in Haaretz, if it's not paywalled, where I interviewed a bunch of Israeli security officials saying, do we really need to be that scared of Putin if we take a more assertive position because of Syria. And I think that, you know, it was hard to get anything out of them, but I think there was enough evidence to say Israel's not going to face an existential threat because Russia might be a little bit upset. Israel will continue doing what it's doing in Syria one way or another. It may be a little bit trickier, but Israel has plenty of, uh, Israel has plenty of ways of doing that. And Russia sure. has no incentive to challenge Israel over Syria because Russian weapons are not good enough. And they don't well, Russia is. I mean, Israel isn't isn't about to ask NATO if they could join, is it? No, no. Uh, Israel's just declined um, Germany the opportunity to give them the Ukrainians more missile, yeah, anti-tank yeah. anti missiles, right. which they've got Israel. Which is a complicated issue as well. We can talk about it, but there's certainly more Israel could be doing in terms of uh, of weapons technology. And by the way, I have to be cautious, but I have the impression through very very hinting kinds of things that come out here and there that Israel that private companies with you know maybe the awareness of the Israeli Ministry of Defense maybe helping with technology sales here and there. There have been bits and pieces. Is uh, rumored about this. And if so, that's good. But for now, publicly, all they're doing, and after way too long, is sending protective military gear, helmets, flak jackets. You know, it's um, it's been very frustrating. I mean, it, actually more, like I find it outrageous. But, you know, there are other countries that have missile defense systems. Israel claims, you know, if we were to hand over the Iron Dome system, it would take, you know, a, at least a year, if not more, to train people to use them. And they're not really built that's, I think the most convincing argument is that the Iron Dome missile defense system isn't actually built for the geography of Russia and Ukraine. It's built for Israel's problem, which is missiles fired from a very short range from Gaza right into Israeli territory. And that, I would say, is probably the most convincing aspect. But there is certainly more Israel could be doing in terms of technology, you know, different kinds of weaponry um, or, you know, parts of even parts of weaponry that could be more useful. And I think that they're just being unreasonable about it you know they don't want to ignore richard we have to we have to we have to unfortunately we have to wrap it up there our, our hour is up but thank you very much indeed everyone for your questions thank you very much indeed dahlia you've given us a very good overview of um, the options available um, and unfortunately i think we're going to be still discussing this question in many 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 months to come so thank you again for your time dahlia shined